You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look back at, first, the strikes that are taking place in Britain this week and why they might be on the verge of a victory. Second, a look at how those strikes fit into the emerging picture, globally, of a labour upsurge. And finally, a report by the BBC that finds its own reporting of economics over the last decade fell short of what was needed. On to our first story. We're producing this episode the evening before what looks set to be one of the biggest single days of strike action in the UK for a decade, in the midst of what is very clearly the largest wave of strikes this country has seen since at least the late 1980s. Obviously, I hope those on strike or contemplating going on strike win and win handsomely. In a rich country, there is plenty of money to pay workers properly, whether teachers or nurses or civil servants or train drivers or whoever. Bloomberg News has reported in the past on just how much money the government really has to hand to pay workers uh, above inflation pay increases. And there is no reason at all to make those people who do this essential work suffer dramatic real-terms pay cuts when there is the money there to pay everyone. But not only do I think the strikers should win... I think there is a very good chance that they will win for two reasons. The first is that the government has fouled this up badly from the start. They may think that they're replicating the sophisticated anti-union strategy of Margaret Thatcher, but in reality what they're doing is more like the strategy of Begbie, the psychopath in train spotting. Um, If you remember the film, there's a scene where he chucks a glass over his head over the balcony uh, to start a fight in the pub and threatens to take on all comers. Now, this is fine for the deeply disturbed Begbie, but it's not a smart way to run the country, and it's not going to be the way the government can win. It's not the way Thatcher ever won her battles with the unions. Attempting to win against everyone all at once was a bad idea, since it creates the conditions where if you, the government, concede to one group of strikers and nurses are the most likely immediate concession, you are likely only to encourage everyone else who's already on strike or thinking about going on strike to press on. It looks like striking works. Splits in the Tory ranks are already appearing over this question. The government have then compounded the error with the anti-strike legislation that was passed through its first Commons hearing yesterday. This is likely to be unworkable if push comes to shove. If you don't actually have the people prepared and able to drive trains, you won't actually get any trains to run, regardless of what you try and demand of them. The power on driving a train lies very much with the person who needs to drive the train. What it looks like the government has done is something to a similarly cack-handed attempt at legislation against trade unions by Edward Heath's government in 1971, the Industrial Relations Act. Now, this was broken after some dock workers were imprisoned briefly for breaking the new restrictions on trade unions. It was broken by trade union protests and the hint of a general strike from the Trades Union Congress. The Heath government had to back down. The legislation became simply unworkable. The disagreement of trade unions was enough to start to break that. But just as Heath found out in 1971, the threat of legislation against unions simply meant that the Labour Party at the time, which, just like now, was not too keen and looking too supportive of any strikers, had a good excuse to act in support of the general principle of unions and strikes without actually having to support any specific strike taking place. 
So the whole Labour movement, Labour Party and trade unions, was happily united against the government. If you look at what the Labour leadership has done now, it's the same political process at work. They've been very insistent that they will oppose the anti-strike legislation. They've been somewhat less insistent about actually supporting any specific strike. So I want to end this first section by simply repeating a point I've made over and over again on the podcast, that wages in Britain have stagnated for the better part of the last decade and are now, with the cost of living crisis, with inflation, falling rapidly in real terms for most people. But we are a rich country and we have the money to pay workers properly. It's high time the government stopped giving its hand out solely to the rich and put its hand in its proverbial pocket to protect workers at the sharpest edge of today's cost of living crisis. And as always, solidarity to those out on strike this week. On to our second story, which concerns the second reason I think a victory could be in the cards for strikers in Britain, or perhaps better, that we could be at the start of a serious upsurge in labour movement organisation. You need to step back a bit from the specific issues in Britain and start to think about the global picture. Right across the world, you can see different groups of workers taking industrial action over the last six to 12 months or so. And it's often groups of workers who haven't done this before, like Amazon strikers in the US, and Britain has just seen its first official Amazon strike earlier this week. French workers have struck and are still striking against pension reforms. South Korean truck drivers have struck for higher pay. Thai workers in Argentina on strike a few weeks ago. Mass protests and strikes are taking place in Haiti. Air traffic controllers have been on strike in 18 different African countries. South Africa has seen 800,000 public sector workers on strike. There's a pattern appearing right across the world in many different countries. Now, I've not seen much as yet, trying to give a global context to this, at least partly because, of necessity, strikes are directly mobilised by immediate local grievances. We live in a world of states organised into competing national economies with their own histories, institutions and patterns of economic development. The development of genuinely transnational labour struggles has always been very contested. It's only really at the peak of the labour movement in the past that you can start to see not just a sort of passive alignment, a coincidence of different struggles in different countries, but an active coordination taking place between them. Even when the institutions of capital then get so large that they span multiple countries, as with the modern multinational corporation, coordinated strikes between countries are very rare. You get solidarity of various kinds across borders, but not so much a coordination within a single company at the same time. But there has been a uniquely common experience in the last few years, that of COVID-19. Even if the primary initial impact of the virus itself was to act as an immensely disturbing force to the formal process of globalisation. So with the lockdowns, the supply chain disruptions, the restrictions on travel, the globalised world that had built up throughout the last few decades was severely disrupted, thrown into chaos. The connections between economies and between people more fundamentally were disrupted. And much of that initial shock is still with us. There's what economists call a bullwhip effect, in which the initial spike in the supply chain, the disruption that took place with lockdowns, takes a long time to play out. But there's a flip side to COVID-19, which is that it was also a profound moment of global commonality. Whatever the political setup, whatever the government response, everyone basically had a similar miserable experience of the virus. Several conflicting elements were brought into play for everybody all at once. The vulnerability of the societies we inhabit, the capacity of governments to spend seemingly without limits if they needed to, the ability to change and reshape how economic life was organised, and perhaps above all, the experience of being told certain groups of people at work were essential or key workers, and then exposing them to immense risks. 
whilst insisting, three years after the first recorded COVID cases, that these same essential workers were now expected to suffer, in the UK case, huge real terms pay cuts as the cost of living crisis rolled onwards. Now, French historian Emmanuel Loire-Ladurie once described the process of the unification of the world by disease. He was talking about the way in which the first Black Death delivered a hammer blow to European feudalism and then, as a new capitalist order arose on the back of it, the process of European colonization, notably in the Americas, was aided by the spread of European diseases into what was previously an immunologically naive population. So people didn't have the immunity to diseases like smallpox that the European settlers had and the consequences were death on a massive scale. Both these processes together, the arrival of Black Death in Europe, the colonisation of the Americas, Leroy Ladurie argues, cleared the path to a globalised capitalist economy. The theory has been criticised since Ladurie was writing in the 70s. It's worth having a look at Alex Nevis and Kerem Dishanyolus' uh, How the West Came to Rule, The Geopolitical Origins of Capitalism, which looks at how the Black Death's arrival in Europe was in turn driven by the conquest of the Mongol Empire across Asia, and then the creation in the train of that of a vast trading system down which the disease could travel. Now, looking back at today, COVID fits into a pattern of increasingly common experiences for those who have to work for a living. A convergence in standards of living that has seen in recent decades a very rapid improvement in living standards from capitalist growth in China, most dramatically across the world, and conversely, a real downwards pressure on living standards across the older developed world. You can see this convergence, this coming together, in the report out this week from the World Inequality Lab that emissions inequality within countries now matters more than the inequality between countries. That's a direct product of this convergence process. That means that there's a common standard of high emissions consumption for the rich everywhere, wherever they are in the world, and increasingly a common standard of somewhat lower emissions consumption for the rest of us across the world. COVID reinforced that convergence. Now, the final element at play here is something I highlighted almost three years ago, in March 2020, writing the New Statesman as the first lockdowns in Europe began. And that was the likelihood of a severe tightening of the labour market. That's, in other words, even if COVID was not likely to be as physically destructive as the Black Death, we might well still expect to see the same impact or a similar impact on the global supply of labour. That if labour is restricted in its use as a result of COVID, it'll start to force up the price of labour, the wages people can expect to get across the globe. This appears to be happening most dramatically in two of the countries with the most cack-handed response to COVID, the US and Britain. Britain especially is one of the places where economic inactivity, so-called, is now much higher after COVID than beforehand, particularly amongst the over 50s. It's a reduction in the supply of labour, meaning in turn that the bargaining power of those still in work is increased. Now, to put this again in a global context, I've been quite influenced by the theory presented by the pretty mainstream economists Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan in their book, The Great Demographic Reversal. They argue that the 40-year period of very much expanded labour markets as China and Eastern Europe opened up to capital from the global north is now coming to an end as populations age and even shrink. Labour in this world will be more scarce, and if labour is becoming more scarce, then, as discussed, we can expect it to become more powerful against capital and start to win higher pay and better conditions. On this view, not their view, but my reading of it, COVID has accelerated us through the process. We have moved rapidly to a point of relative labour shortage as a result of the virus. And the result of that is not only do workers have a strong incentive to strike, given inflation, they also have the capacity to do so and to win when they do. It's for this reason we find the British government plaintively telling the over-50s to get back to work because, in Jeremy Hunt's words, the country needs them, while simultaneously passing vicious anti-strike legislation. 
It's a picture common across the world. The South Korean truckers' strike was broken by government repression, described by the Union Federation as a return to martial law, something South Korea has suffered in the not-too-distant past. But this big shift holds out the prospect that what we're seeing at the moment isn't simply a momentary blip, but the start of a more fundamental shift in how economies operate. A shift that could, really for the first time in my life, see a serious shift in the balance of power back towards working people. This is absolutely not guaranteed. In the British case, much will depend on what happens in the next few weeks as the two sides, strikers versus government, contest. But there are solid reasons to think that the default setting of neoliberalism, that organised labour is weak, and apparently permanently weak, is now a thing of the past. And finally, continuing the positive news, the BBC has published its first thematic review looking at the issue of impartiality in its economics reporting. This follows complaints in late 2020 from fairly eminent economists about a particularly poor piece of editorialising from the BBC's then political editor, Laura Koonsberg. Ahead of the autumn statement that year, Kunzberg was describing the nation's credit card as maxed out following coronavirus. The economists, quite rightly, uh, wrote in to say that this is a sort of nonsense metaphor. There is no credit card. It is not maxed out. This isn't how governments work. The BBC's lead political journalist should not be talking in this way. The review doesn't hold back. Um, written by two independent experts, Andrew Dillnott and Michael Blasland, it says that too many BBC journalists lack an understanding of basic economics. This is particularly looking at political journalists, the people who do the political reporting you most often see in television, rather than some of their specialist economic journalists. They say that some journalists apparently instinctively believe old debt to be inherently bad and therefore just assume government has to get rid of it without getting too far into the real arguments that take place amongst economists about what government should be doing with its debt. This is a live economic issue that ought to be reported in the way that people can grasp and understand the arguments. Instead, we get a kind of pappy mash around, it's a national credit card that's maxed out, the cupboard is bare, there's no money left. We all know the story over the last few years. And all of this matters. What the review also found is that actually public understanding of economics is not particularly good. That's not really the public's fault. I mean, everybody can get economics if you sit and sort of go through what the arguments are and have it presented to you in a way that makes sense. But instead, they've just been sort of patronised, particularly or led by the BBC over the last decade or so to accept a version of the world and the version of the economic world in which the government has a credit card somewhere, there's no money left to pay in it, and we all have no choice but to do austerity. Dissenting voices, often very respectable, eminent dissenting voices, people with impeccable establishment economics credentials, were ruled out of order once you start to talk in a world like this and frame the question of austerity around the urgent need to repay the debt, ignoring the fact that governments don't ever really repay their debt, ignoring the fact that governments, as we saw in coronavirus, can kind of print money if they have to, to pay for all their borrowing, ignoring the fact that they can raise taxes, ignoring the fact, as the report says, there's a wide range of choices available to government, even when debt is high, that don't include having to reassert austerity and impose the cuts and cause the immense damage that has now become all too painfully obvious in Britain over the last decade or so. So it's very good news that the BBC have taken this honest and self-critical look at its own reporting. It's to be hoped that the Director General, the BBC Board, follow up on the attitude and suggestions 
taken by the report and provide some training, at the very least, in economics for some of its political journalists and start to think about including those alternative voices from a whole spectrum of economic thinking when it comes to reporting of economic issues. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. And finally, Macrodose is happy to be a partner of the Politics Theory Other podcast. You can find our show, as well as many fantastic long-form interviews with Grace Blakely, Nancy Fraser, and many more, by searching Politics Theory Other wherever you get your podcasts. 